Father, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be acceptable to you through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Please be seated. The text is the epistle reading for this morning. And just a little background to this. Um, the church in Jerusalem was and is the mother of all churches. It's the mother church. It's where the church began. And it's also where the church first experienced persecution. Now, by the time Paul writes to the Corinthians in our epistle reading for today, by, by the time he writes them, the church in Jerusalem has been undergoing persecution, severe persecution for some time. So Paul asks all of the churches that he's planted around the Mediterranean, he asks all of them to take up a collection for the Christians in Jerusalem for their relief. And the church in Corinth agrees. They say, we're in. So they begin a collection for Jerusalem, but then it stops. And for some reason, it's not finished. Why? We don't know. But that's why Paul's writing 2 Corinthians. That's one reason why he's writing. And here's my question to you. How do you get someone to do what they're supposed to when for whatever reason they are no longer doing it? How do you motivate, whether it's a child or a student, a spouse, whoever it may be, how do you motivate obedience? Well, if you're in a position of authority over that individual, you could simply command them to do what you ask. And Paul could certainly have done that with the Corinthians. He not only planted the church, but he was an apostle. He had authority in all the churches, wherever he would go. But Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't issue a command. Instead, he does two things in our epistle. He informs the Corinthians of what some other churches are doing with the collection, and he reminds the Corinthians of what Jesus has already done for them. Page 8 in your bulletin, the epistle reading. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, in Corinth, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now, if you were to stop there and read no more, you would think something rather good had been happening among the churches in Macedonia. But you would be wrong. What was happening in the churches of Macedonia was not something to be envied, but something to be avoided and feared. Verse 2, For in a severe test of affliction, that is the persecution, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. 
So the church in Jerusalem was not alone in its suffering. The churches of Macedonia were suffering as well, and yet they were giving generously to their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Page 9 in your bulletin, the outline, Roman numeral 1. This is what's happening in Macedonia. Out of affliction arises joy. Imagine that. Out of extreme poverty arises generosity. Now, we may fail to see how affliction results in joy or poverty results in greater generosity, but, but that was the experience of the Macedonian Christians. And it's echoed elsewhere in Scripture. In Acts chapter 5, after the apostles are beaten by the Jewish ruling council and commanded to no longer preach the name of Jesus anywhere in Jerusalem or Judea, they leave the council rejoicing. Why? That they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. They rejoiced that they were worthy to suffer. And I'm reminded of the words of James, the brother of our Lord, in chapter 1 of his epistle. He says, count it all joy, brothers, when you experience trials of various kinds. And, and why? He goes on to explain why we should rejoice in the midst of trial, because the trials conform us to Christ. As he carried his cross, we're called to carry ours. And when we suffer for his name, we're being shaped, conformed to his image. Not the image of the world, but the image of Jesus. And that's reason for rejoicing, no matter what the cause. Now, we don't seek affliction. We don't seek poverty. But even those undesirable things in God's hands become blessings. So letter A, when God afflicts us, and he's the one who does it, he is treating us as sons. Hebrews 12, 7 asks the question, what son is there that the father does not discipline? And letter B, even in our afflictions, he is gracious. He's giving to us. I like the words of Psalm 119, verse 67. The psalmist writes, before I was afflicted, I went astray. Can you identify with that? A little affliction kind of gets your attention. Or in verse 71, it was good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. Or verse 75, the psalmist confesses, in faithfulness you have afflicted me. I, I like the illustration of pruning. Uh, I've got some trees I planted in my front yard a couple of years back, and, and uh, I've been pruning them periodically to shape them, to make them look more like trees. They, they came to me more or less as bushes, uh, but I pruned them up to, be the, to look like the trees they really are. Now, I didn't ask the tree's opinion about that before I started cutting. And I, I have to think, if the tree could choose, it wouldn't ask to be pruned. It put out all those extra branches on its own because obviously it felt it needed to. But I felt differently. 
And I had my own design for the tree, which I imposed upon it. He's the vine, we're the branches, the Father is the pruner. He prunes. It's painful, but it bears fruit. Verse 3, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then, by the will of God, to us. Roman numeral two. God measures generosity not by the amount given, but by the will or the desire of the giver. Letter A, this desire to give was present even among the Macedonians. In verse 4 we read, they had to beg Paul for the privilege of giving something. Why? Because apparently Paul had written them off. The Macedonians were so poor that Paul was not going to ask them to give anything. He apparently thought they could not afford to do so. In letter B, this desire is every bit as important as the deed itself. The desire to give is, in God's eyes, just as important as whatever's given. Look at verse 10. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. You see, the desire is put right up there with the doing. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, meaning if the desire is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. You see how important the desire to give is. It's not the amount. It's the desire. Why? Because God looks at the heart. In 1 Samuel 16, God says this to the prophet Samuel. He says, man looks at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. He sees through your skin. He sees all the way to the motive, to the desire, whether it's there or not. And that's why we talk about here at Grace, stewardship of time, treasure, talents, and thoughts. Because desire matters to God as much, if not more, than whatever's given. Letter C. This desire is created not by way of command. You can't command love. You cannot coerce desire. Love is a freely chosen commitment to the well-being of the other. That's what makes it so noble. That's what makes it worth celebrating. The desire to give cannot be created by any command. If you command someone often enough, they're not going to love you. They're going to despise you. They're not going to want to do what you want. They're going to want to do what they want. This desire cannot be created by a command, but, number one, by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. By the gospel, in other words, 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Notice, he was not made poor by someone else. He was not forced into poverty for our sake. He chose that impoverishment, that nakedness on the cross, the homelessness. He chose that for us, that we might receive his riches. Now that is love. That is love worth celebrating, and that's why the church gathers together every Lord's Day. This desire cannot be created by any command, but, number two, by the gospel's effect upon others, by what you see the Macedonians and others doing as a result of the gospel. This gospel of our Savior not only justifies us in the sight of God, it sanctifies us as well. It transforms us even as it transformed the Macedonian Christians. When we see what God did in the lives of the Macedonian Christians, that grows our faith. That perhaps we can do at least more than we had previously assumed. Letter D. The Macedonians gave according to their ability. In other words, with a view to their own needs being met as well. But they did not stop there. They went even further. They went where few people ever go. They gave beyond their ability. And in the Greek, I love the way it's worded, contrary to their ability. They disregarded their own needs in order to give to this collection for the people in Jerusalem. And they did so willingly. And it, it brought to my mind the words of the psalmist, Psalm 110, verse 3, where the psalmist writes this about God, your people will be willing in the day of your power. That is, if you want to see the power of God at work, the miracle you should observe is the miracle of a transformed heart. Someone who previously was unwilling and skeptical about the promises of God, who now has been so affected by the promises of God that he's doing what he thought he never would. That's the power of God at work. That sort of giving is contrary to nature. It's contrary to human nature. It's not natural to give in such a way that you ignore your own needs. It's not natural. It is supernatural. It is not earthly. It is heavenly. The Macedonian Christians were giving in a manner similar to the way God himself gives. Verse 5 says, they gave themselves to the Lord and to the apostles. Now, my friends, God does not require you to give everything away. Rather, he requires you to give everything to him. To acknowledge that it's all his, no matter what it may be. Time, treasure, talents, thoughts. And when you believe that everything belongs to him, you will want to live less for yourself and more for the well-being of others around you. Roman numeral three. Your generosity enabled by the gospel now, is part of God's larger goal of leveling 
leveling humanity. Luther said correctly that God only does two things in Scripture. He does it over and over and over again. He brings down the proud and he lifts up the lowly. He fills the hungry with good things and the rich he sends away empty. My friends, when you freely give of your own accord to the ministry of the gospel, you're bringing down the proud through the preaching of the law and you're lifting up the afflicted, the lowly, through the preaching of the gospel. The more you give back to God, the more you join him in his work of humbling those who exalt themselves and exalting those who humble themselves. Letter A. God democratizes generosity in a way even Paul did not expect. Paul writes in verse 4 that the Macedonians had to beg for the right of participation in the collection for the church in Jerusalem. The Macedonians were so impoverished that when it came to the collection for Jerusalem, these Macedonians were not even asked to participate. They did not have a seat at the table. Apparently, Paul had not invited them, so they invited themselves. They corrected the error. And their generosity was excessive, not in the size of the gift given, I'm sure, but in the size of their desire to do whatever they could. God measures generosity, not by the size of the gift, but by the size of the desire to give, because the Lord looks at the heart. As someone once said, it's not the size of the dog in the fight, it's the size of the fight in the dog. In this epistle reading, God is once again leveling humanity. He's making the gift of generosity accessible to everyone, regardless of their means, because God measures generosity not by the size of the gift, but by the size of the heart's desire to help. And that desire, that generosity, is within the reach of everyone whose heart has been touched by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 13, Paul writes, I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, and the word there in the Greek is equality, as a matter of equality, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness or equality. As it is written, Whoever gathered much had, and this is a reference now to the gathering of the manna. When the manna first appeared in Exodus 16, the people went out to gather it up. Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. In other words, God ensured, in all their gathering, God ensured that every Israelite had a sufficient amount. No one lacked what was needed. And let her be. God's goal for each of us is sufficiency. Sufficiency, not luxury. Luxury is not well spoken of in Scripture. If I desire luxury, my heart is not right with God, and I need to repent. God has not promised luxury. He has promised sufficiency. 
And God's desire for us is generosity, a generosity available to everyone, rich and poor alike, because God measures generosity less by the amount given and more by the desire to give it. It is a generosity available to everyone because, God's, uh, because of God's generosity to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's a generosity within the reach of everyone, as illustrated by the Macedonian Christians. If they could be so generous, having so little, perhaps we can be more generous than we think. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.